Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight is uh, May 31st of 2012, and our guest is Pamela Smith-Bell. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether, our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest tonight is Pamela Smith-Bell. She is a addictions counselor in private practice. Um, she's studied all over the world. Uh, she's studied in Australia, in Michigan, and many different places. And she's going to be telling us some things about narrative therapy, harm reduction, at meditation, lots of other interesting things. She's right here now. Pamela, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great, Kenneth. Thanks for having me on. Well, Thanks tell for us. doing this wonderful work. Oh, thank you. Uh, tell us, what is narrative therapy? Some people haven't heard of that before. Narrative therapy was developed by um, uh, Michael White and David Epstein, and um, David Epstein's from New Zealand. Michael White um, has passed, but he he was from Australia. Um, narrative therapy, how to put it in a few words. Um, when they're talking about narratives, they're actually talking about uh, a person's story. And so it's not about being in counseling and, say, telling your story uh, to the counselor, and the counselor understands it. It's more about um, understanding that a, a person's story is shaped by um, it's shaped by society and culture, events. It's shaped by the way it's told, and that stories um, evolve and stories can be told in many different ways. And that um, stories that we tell about ourselves and they're told about us often aren't aren't um, created by us um, intentionally. So that if you're talking about substance use or any kind of a behavior that's troublesome, um, a lot of times the story is told in what they would call the dominant narrative, and that means um, using shaming or blaming language, um, that sort of thing. But that um, in, in any story can be told many different ways and that we actually have the power and the right to tell our story in a way that's helpful to us. So that's that is one of the foundations of it. There are a lot of different um kind of principles. Uh, another is that they use in substance um use would be uh, something they call externalizing and w- the problem. So what they would say is the the person is not the problem. The problem is the problem. And you take the problem outside of the person and talk about it as an external entity. And that way, um, it's not embedded in you. Um, You can work against it. You can evade it. You can conquer it. You can outwit it. And also, your support system can work with you against the problem rather than working against you as the problem, if that makes sense. Um, Yeah, it does make sense. Do you see uh, traditional treatment paradigms, as as helping people to create a negative narrative about themselves. Y- yes, and that's um, that's how I uh, kind of found narrative therapy. 
Um, I was working as an intern in, an, in a substance uh, treatment agency, and um, you know, and initially very naive and and thinking that um, you know that this is science based and 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 the people were doing good, you know, empirically based work and so forth. But as I just watched and observed, I saw a lot of things that troubled me. And I saw things like the coercion, the belittling, the shaming, blaming, all of that, um, control, controlling what people wore, how they spoke, what their schedules were, who, you know, how they talked to other people, and, you know, no dating, and you have to believe in God, and, you know, everything they did was controlled. And some, of, and that bothered me a lot, and um, I wondered how um, I could work um, in that situation in a way that um, I was afraid that those things might be doing harm, but I didn't know if they were or not. But my gut kind of told me that that probably wasn't a helpful way of working with people. Um, but I was I had a dilemma because I'm working in the agency, and the agency has policies, and how do I maintain um, my own ethics um, and still work within the agency you know, bounds. And um, so I looked and looked for uh, something that would be um, what looked seemed safe to me and helpful, um, but yet wouldn't conflict with what other counselors were telling, you know, the clients. And um, I found narrative therapy. Um, and it worked quite well because it's not a, um, it doesn't judge or, um, I don't know quite how to put it. It's not, it doesn't judge other ways of doing things necessarily. Um, it just um, kind of works with the person in a more positive way, and really, that's kind of hard to to um, critique, you know, to to um, uh, you know condemn. So uh, I found that um, the the agency didn't have a problem with me using narrative therapy. Um, because it wasn't like anti-AA or anti-cognitive CBT. Um, it was more about using people's uh, strengths and skills and goals and wishes and dreams, and very few people could be against that. So does this involve uh, people reconstructing their past stories, stories of experiences they've gone through? Is it a retelling um, in a new way? It's, um, not exactly. Um it's um, what what White and Epson would would do or or have us do is say look at um, they would they would listen to a person's story and not go too deeply into stories of negative negative kind of remembrances and behaviors and things because that just supports those kind of things. But what they looked for was what they called the exception to the story. So if a person would say, well, I always did this wrong, I've always failed. Um, you know, I've never succeeded, and so on. They would they would look for a time in that story where that person uh, did succeed uh, or did overcome some kind of an obstacle, and then they would start to ask them about that. And then they would say things. Well, what does this tell you about yourself that over all those times you you weren't able to do this, but then this time you did. And um, then the person would start to tell that story, that story about how they overcame. And then um, then you will take that new story and what they call the preferred story, which is true. It's a true story. It really happened uh, in the midst of all this negative story. 
And then you would um, you would support that story by saying things like, and who else knew this about you? Who in your life knew that you were capable of this? And then the person um, will name someone, and then you'd ask them to name another and another. And even if that person is feeling very incompetent, um, if they start to name people that know about their competence, then they start to they start to believe it themselves. So that's a support. And they use other kind of things, documents. They would write. They work with a lot with children and things, and they would document people's successes and things like that. And these were all things that were meant to kind of help cement that new that preferred story. So it does a lot to support self-efficacy. Exactly. Exactly. And it's um and and you know, you and I have talked a little bit about Foucault, and Foucault talked about how we um we have there's always a power um there's always a power um differential in every situation people there's always one person that's in power in a like say in a conversation or any reaction and he would say that we do have the ability and the right to take that power ourselves and um so i use this example of narrative therapy and and Foucault suggesting that we can take um, we can we can shift the power to ourselves. Say for example, we have an event like um, like a mugging, like I was mugged. Now the police would be might be talking to me, and they might say they might start to together we'd construct a story about the mugging, and we talk about my helplessness, my injuries, my fear, my paranoia. Now I have a sense of isolation. Why did this happen to me? I don't feel safe. These might this might be a story constructed around that event, and they're all true. Um, but that story could also be told another way. I could say, um, "Well, I'm glad it was me and not my elderly neighbor." I could say, "Gosh, I have a new. Um, I'm, I'm so relieved I wasn't hurt more badly." I'm still alive. I'm so grateful. Um, I'm now appreciating smaller things in life that I used to take for granted. I found a support system I never knew I had. Um, that's another way of telling that same story. Um, and it's true as well. Um, and uh, we get to choose. You know, Foucault would say we get to choose uh, which story. And which I just ask is more helpful. What are some of the ways that uh, narrative therapy differs from, say, psychoanaly- psychoanalytic approach or person-centered approach or other other approaches? Well, um, we're kind of getting into um, we're kind of getting into modernism and postmodernism a little bit there. Like psychotherapy would talk about the problems being inside the person. And um, we've already talked a little bit of how about narr- how narrative therapy would externalize the problem and take it outside of the person. Um, and so um, some of the more postmodern approaches that I really like acknowledge that we don't live in our head alone. Uh, we don't live in a vacuum. We, we can't exist in our head exi- as if the world and other people don't exist, that we're always living within a society, a culture, a physical world, and a relational world. And so that's the difference because I think that if you only focus on what is inside, uh, supposedly inside a person, and go looking for deep-seated problems, 
um, that you actually run the risk of manufacturing deep-seated problems, for one thing, but you also ignore all the external influences and possibilities um, that could be contributing to whatever a person is struggling with. And that I am a counselor and I come from a a wellness-based position, and so I believe that people are basically well, um, that we're not mentally ill, and that we all struggle with life's transitions and and challenges, deaths and births and, you know, ups and downs of all sorts and different kinds of traumas. Um, But that's that's part of life and it's natural and normal. And then our reaction to them are normal reactions to life's struggles. And that doesn't make us mentally ill. So that would be a big difference because I think if you're looking at a psychoanalytical perspective, you're really looking at a medical model that people are, you know, can have mental illnesses. And I I would rather think of people as well and struggling and needing uh, support. In narrative therapy, what sort of uh, power relationship is there between the therapist and the client? Is it like a therapist is in charge of everything, or is the therapist an equal, or is it something else? Um, even better. Um, I think that in narrative therapy, the therapist is the learner. And I think that that is an exciting um, exciting uh, way of looking at it and a position um, because the narrative therapist believes that that person is fully capable of thriving and surviving and excelling, and they they really honestly believe it, and they also think that every person is unique and 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 has so much to offer, and they are are very anxious to see that, and they just know that if they um, or patient, they will they will get to see that in that person, and that no one is more of an expert on a person than they themselves. And so the therapist is not the expert. The therapist is the learner, and the client is the expert. So it's not even a, a um, it's not even an egalitarian perspective. It's actually one instead of top down or equal. It's actually that the the client is the expert. And, and I think that that is, um, I think that's um, a brilliant way of looking at it. I think that's an excellent way to approach well, all kinds of problems, um, but substance abuse problems in particular. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you, uh, we do this a lot in our group. You know, we ask people. Well, you, you know, if somebody says, "I want to, I want to have an abstinence day," and we say, "Well, what did you do last time that you abstained from drinking?" And then say, "Oh, this is what I did." And, you know, and. Yeah. You know, bring them back to some of their experiences, and you know exactly. And and that's um, something that another another thing that uh, is used in in uh, narrative therapy is called witnessing, and that is where you know in the traditional style of counseling, everything is all confidential, and you would never reveal anything or that happens inside the treatment and all of this. But but in narrative therapy. Um, because the because people are well and not sick, there's nothing to be ashamed of, and because people are excelling and thriving, um, then that's something to be celebrated. And because they're clever and resourceful, then of course that's something to be proud of. And so the narrative therapist would often ask the client if it's okay to share um, their their um, strategies. So just like you mentioned, when you say to somebody in the group, well, how did you do it? When they tell you, it's something new to you, and it's something new to other people. And when you ask them, oh, can I share that with others? Because there are many people struggling with the same thing, and they would be so, um, you know, they would. I'm sure they would like to hear about that. 
And that helps that person feel, um, you know, a, a greater sense of efficacy too, and of course pride. Um, but then also in narrative therapy, sometimes they would arrange for clients to meet. And so they would say, if it's okay, would you like to meet this other person that's still struggling and you could share, what, you know, your strategies? I think it would be so helpful. And then when a person becomes a teacher, um, they're also, you know, um, becoming stronger too in their own you know in their own struggles well absolutely that's the time when you really learn something is when you teach it and it doesn't mm-hmm. matter you know if it's life skills if it's calculus if it's t- it's if it's a foreign language when you teach it that's when you really learn it right and so the client becomes um instead of coming in as the person that's, that's disordered or diseased or you know mentally ill um they come in as an expert on the, in their own strategies and then they they become a teacher and they help other people so you know what a you know i just think that's a wonderful way of of um of dealing with with any kind of problem you're right but particularly substance is narrative therapy done primarily one on one or is it used in groups as well um, I think it's usually one-on-one, and I'm not going to claim to be an expert on narrative therapy. I've read quite a bit about it. I've kept in, I've kept up with some of the the writings, but there's there's a lot a lot written um, out there. I I haven't read all of it, so I can't say that I'm um, I'm a complete expert. It's used in a lot of different fields. Um, there is a um, there is a, a a branch of it that is used in substance um, substance treatment, um, and they wouldn't say treatment, but um, you know substance use, and um, actually used quite a bit uh, in conjunction with uh, in collaboration, I should say, with Aboriginal people. And um, they've taken narrative therapy all over the world, and it's used um, for all sorts of things, social justice, and in a number of things. So it is used in groups. Um, but it, it, it's just it's it's extremely broad, so it'd be hard for me to really give a, a concise you know description of it. Okay, let's talk a little bit about how you got involved with harm reduction. Well, I talked a little bit about how you know I started working in this in the agency, and um, to, to be honest with you, when I started to question just uh, to myself, you know the the kind of coercive. Um, model that was was being used um i i just started to question all of it um but i was an i was a novice and and i thought well and you know i could be wrong but um i i just was kind of um wondering you know what the uh, science was behind all of this i started to read um i started to look for research one of the i, I think one of the best books i i ever written read on that is uh, Rethinking Substance Abuse, uh, What Science Shows and What We Should Do About It by William um, Miller and Kathleen Carroll. I don't know if you've read that. Uh, it was written in 2006. Um, I've heard of it. I know William Miller's work oh, pretty well. He's yeah. really great. Motivational interviewing, yeah. Um, it's an amazing book. He wrote it uh, with, with uh, Kathleen Carroll after a um, symposium of world scientists on substance use. They were scientists from all all venues. There was genetic and twin studies, neuroscience, behaviorals, um, you name it. Um, they all met in, I think, Taos, New Mexico, I believe. And from that, um, Miller and Carol wrote a book where they, they kind of uh, did a, a, almost in a layman's terms, 
synopsis of what they got from that conference. So they sort of took the scientific jargon out so that you and I could read it and uh, understand it. And um, and it's just fascinating because um, it really dispels a lot of the myths that we, you know, we have just come to assume. And um, and uh, some of the things were that, you know, outpatient, they found that outpatient treatment is just as effective as inpatient. Of course, we know it's mm-hmm. a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. That the shaming, blaming, and incarcerating people is not um, effective and actually can be counterproductive. Um, they, um, you know, they did look, you know, the neuroscience of it and um and from that um i know that miller also wrote a book about um harm reduction he didn't call it harm reduction but i think he used it um forget the term he used but um you know it did include um using safely and so um I I have uh, I wish I had my copy but I keep lending it to people and I never get it back so I keep buying more and um I know that um people I know that teach this uh in the, at the college level the masters are now using it as their, their textbooks um and I think um I really think uh, any of you out there listening would enjoy that um I like and then in the end he gives um they give uh 10 suggestions um uh, for the treatment world. Um and again this was in 2006 and I'm not seeing I I'm not seeing a lot of this uh, implemented yet. So I'm really happy to see your work because a lot of the things that he talks about are the same things that that you talk about. Um and then the only thing about harm reduction that I read, I was trying to find research and I found some done, that that was reported through some AA literature that was done a study done, there was a group that was trying to implement harm reduction back I don't know 50s or 60s something like that and that 10 years later or so they went back and looked at the people that were trying to do it and they said it was a dismal failure that you know people had horrible results nobody Nobody uh, did well, and um, and I don't know the the research at the time when I read it. It just um, it didn't have um, it didn't have a ring of truth uh, to me. And now I am a researcher. I'm um, I'm I work in qualitative research, and I now can look. I'm also a reviewer. I review for a qualitative research journal, and um, and one of the things I do do is look at manuscripts to see if the research that people are doing is sound and that they've gone through proper methods and, you know, that that, that their work is well-founded and so forth. And so when I look back at that particular research, it's just full of logical fallacies and and, and a lot of problems. So I, I don't know, you know, who did it. I, it was a long time since I read that, but um, it just made me think, wow, has nobody done anything in harm reduction since since then? Because that certainly didn't seem to be a very uh, sound um, sound um, study. Um, the other thing is because of my uh, what I call a postmodern approach, and uh, and also not just narrative therapy, but there are other um, models that I really like, like appreciative inquiry and collaborative therapy, um, and uh, dialogical therapy, and these all are ones where you have a very respectful relationship with the client. And because of that, I just don't think that um, I have a right to tell people what they should and shouldn't do. So that's part of the reason that I 
I, I'm, um, I, I like harm reduction because I don't think that it's helpful for me to make a decision for somebody else what they should do with their life. And that sort of fits in with, with all the different models that, that I kind of find useful for me. Well, since you mentioned the research, uh, I can run down really quickly a couple things that are done with harm reduction um, that really stand out. One is uh, needle exchange programs have been studied. They've been found they don't increase drug use and they greatly reduce mm-hmm. HIV infections. Uh, Mark and Linda Sobel did some research on controlled drinking, which found that the people that got the controlled drinking uh, training these were people with alcohol dependence. Um, they uh, were far more functional than the people that were coerced into, abs- that were told they had to abstain or else they would be drunk all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the people that got controlled drinking training were much better at uh, getting to work and not missing days from being too drunk. Um, that research was thoroughly attacked by uh, the the treatment industry, Mary Pendery. People can look all this up online. Stanton mm-hmm. Peel's got some good articles on his website, but you know, uh, eventually they were vindicated, and it was demonstrated that the controlled drinking uh, therapy was totally legitimate. Uh, Martha Sanchez Craig did the same thing, a similar thing uh, in Toronto with problem drinkers rather than people with alcohol dependence, and found that they were very successful with uh, reduced drinking programs. Um, mm-hmm. So there's been quite a bit out there. So it's it's, it's just, uh, and I and I'll admit that I have not I have not kept up on the research, but that all just makes sense to me. Um it makes sense and that's so that's how I operate and um I think that it puts the power in the hands of the client. Um and the more power they have in their hands that the better that the more um autonomous they're they're going to be. So it just makes sense to me. Absolutely. Uh, one of the most interesting things from the Martha Sanchez Craig study was she had two groups. One group was told they had to abstain. The other group was told they had a choice of moderate drinking or abstinence. Uh, which group do you think had the most abstainers? Was the, the one, one that, that had a choice. The one that had the choice had the most abstainers. Well, I know I don't like to be told that I can't do something. So if you tell me I can't eat chocolate, I'm going to eat chocolate. So I, it just seems it just seems counterproductive to me to to tell people don't do something. I think you know, especially if you're a parent, you know how that works with children. So um, it just it just makes sense to me. So I'm glad that you you have found the research. It it really backs up there. Um, now William L. White. Um, is a is a researcher in the uh, uh, substance field, and one of the I've I've been to a couple of his um, trainings, and in one time he mentioned that um, they found that substance problems tend to happen at the same rate among all classes in our society, um, but that the ones that use the abstinence only um, treatment methods tend to be from the lower and lower middle classes. Um, predominantly not not completely but predominantly mm-hmm. but yet the people from the middle and upper classes that don't use those programs actually um get better however you define better get better um at the at the same rate and yet they're not using abstinence based programs um and he said that that, that segment of the population is not well studied 
And so we don't really know exactly how they do it, but that it seems to be a, a number of things. And, uh, and of course, um, moderate use, safe use, whatever, um, using count, traditional counseling, pastoral counseling, support from family and friends, um, and just like just like other mental health problems, um, a lot of people just get better with no intervention at all. Um, actually, I think the latest statistics are about 33% people get better with with no intervention. So, so there you go. Mm-hmm. Depends on how long you do the follow up. The uh, NISARC that looked at alcohol dependence over 20 years found mm-hmm. out that over half of people with alcohol dependence uh, recovered without treatment, with no treatment, no AA. Right. Okay. And this is this is this talk I heard from uh, White was quite a few years ago. So yeah, I, I don't have anything recent on that, but I did find that really interesting because you know I I have read. Um, you know, I've read, you know, claims and statements that, you know, if you don't abstain, then, you know, there's certain relapse, death, so on, and all these kind of scare tactics, I think. So um, I think it's really helpful to know that there is a very optimistic, um, you know, prognosis there. Um yeah, I know. The scare tactics, they didn't work on me at all. And, you know, when I was in rehab, I was there voluntarily because I knew I had to change what I was doing. But then they started giving me all this nonsense, and I started asking for, what's the scientific validation behind this? What kind of controlled studies do you have to back up that you have to stand in a circle and say the Lord's Prayer while you hold each other's hands? Mm-hmm. How does this cure mm-hmm diseases mm-hmm. and you know uh, i didn't really get too many mm. answers except that i was going to die because yeah. I, was, I was i was a doubter <laughs> yeah i i'll tell you i i, I do think that uh, you know the people are well-meaning and and trying to be helpful but 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 i have to say i worked in the agency for almost three years and i saw the same people cycling through again and again and again and I, I had more and more doubts, and they weren't just doubts, but I saw an awful a lot of people, um, you know, relapse immediately after. Um, and then there was a period of time where, in about a six-month period, five of our graduates died, and that just had a devastating effect on me. It, it, it. I can't tell you how profound, uh, profoundly it affected me, and I really felt started to feel very. Um, uh, determined to find a better way um, because I really began to believe that the treatment itself was doing more harm than good. And it's one thing to have bad therapy and someone comes out a little more depressed, but when someone comes out dead, I just, it really, uh, I mean, I just can't tell you how strongly I felt about that. Um, so um, you had mentioned that um, you were, that uh, you were going to talk a little bit about a paper that I wrote. It was quite a few years ago, and it was when I was working in the treatment center. And I was trying to come up with um, a way of working um, that would kind of bypass all of that. And so um, one of one of the things we had group therapy, and instead of doing group, instead of doing a, a, um, a like you said, <laughs> stand in a circle and repeat uh, canned programs. Um, um, I had I'd seen a, a film about the Pashana uh, meditation. It was quite astounding, and it involved an, a, science, a neuroscientific study as well, where they had taken this 
um, prison in India that was the most violent prison and uh, had uh, thousands of very, very violent prisoners in there. And they did an experiment, and they took um, a, a, a number of the of the uh, prisoners, and they trained them in Vipassana yoga uh, meditation. And um, they also trained the guards as well and the prison staff. And um, not only was there an amazing change in them uh, all, in all of them, but then uh, it was so amazing they replicated it uh, several times, and then they did some some scans, some um, like PET scans. I, I forget what kind of scans they were, but, you know, brain scans. And the difference in the prisoners before and after was, you know, really quite uh, remarkable on the scans. And so I I really thought this would be that the medita- that just meditating, you know, would be helpful. Um but on the other hand, I also was really um turned off by um forcing people to do everything. They, these these people were forced to get up at a certain time, you know, eat at a certain time, class at a certain time, dress at a certain time, you know, talk, don't talk and so forth. And I didn't want to do any more of that to them than they'd already had done and, and I wanted to give them some sort of freedom if I could. So I gave them the option of not meditating and I said, if you'd like you can just sleep. And so I said, you can go and get your pillows and your blankets and so forth if you'd like. And everybody would do that and lay on the floor. We'd do it with them laying on the floor. So if they wanted to, they could sleep or they could look out the window or whatever. Um, And so we did kind of a meditation, but I combined it with narrative therapy as well. So as I had them doing like a visual uh, guided imagery, instead of me deciding what the imagery was, I'm trying to give them freedom and I'm, I'm asking them to look at a place um, that they'd like to be, imagine themselves where they'd like to be in doing things that they would like to be doing with people they'd like to be with. And then I'd imagine them, have them imagine overcoming obstacles, and I would use some of the narrative therapy uh, bits in there and, you know, who knows this about you, the witnessing and so forth. And I'd play some music that would be a little bit adventurous, you know, like themes from a movie or something and have some sort of um, adventure to them. And... um and that, um, what was kind of neat about it was that um, I was trying to keep myself as absent from it as I could. I had to kind of lead it, but I was trying to give them the freedom um, to see themselves, you know, thriving and excelling and dreaming and so forth. And all I can say is that after several years, you know, I just I got a, a lot of great feedback from them. But I can't say that it's scientific at all because I um, I didn't I didn't ask them about it afterwards. I I didn't want to intrude. You know, I was really trying to give them. I was trying to actually let them get away and get outside of the place. You know, for an hour, which which is something that they weren't allowed to do. So um, since then, my thinking on that has broadened a little bit. And I'm a little skeptical about the whole neuroscience brain scan thing, um, actually. I'm a little skeptical about what those scans actually reveal. Um, they look quite impressive. You'll see one brain that looks all healthy and pink and so forth, and then you'll see one that's all full of holes, and then you'll see it turn pink or whatever again. But um, in this, you know, it probably indicates something, but I don't think we can really say for sure what it does indicate. Um, I think when they did that study in the movie, they were trying to say, well, this particular kind of meditation is healing these people and curing these people. And they did use it for for substance use, too. Um, But there's something that they didn't point out to, they didn't uh, talk about, and that is that there's, you know, a very strict caste system there in India, and they had the guards and and the administrators and so forth doing this 
uh, meditation with the prisoners. And the prisoners got better food, and they were away from the violence. They were safe. And they didn't acknowledge in the study that that all of those things actually could have had a far more profound effect than the meditation itself or the meditation alone. Because, you know, think about it. They just erased the caste system. They brought everyone to the same level. The guards who were of different caste and the administration that were from different castes were all in there together doing the same thing. They were all eating the same food. There were no weapons, um, you know, and they're showing compassion for each other. They're safe. And so I think that I think that um, when we're looking at substance use, my personal opinion is that very often it's a coping tool, and it's because people are coping with things. And I think those prisoners were coping with a lot. They were coping with discrimination. They are coping with violence and poverty and all sorts of things. And when, for a moment, they were relieved of those things, they felt better. And so I think when we're treating substance use or any other thing that we really need to consider all of the influences in the in people's lives, um, not just one thing like a substance. Well, I think it's uh, very true. You pointed out there's some possible confounds in uh, that experiment in India. But uh, recently at the University of Washington, Alan Marlatz, the late Alan Marlatz Research Group, has studied meditation in a controlled fashion quite a bit, and they've gotten really good results with substance users with it. So it does Yeah, I'm not really saying promising. that I'm opposed to it. I'm saying that um, I'm really skeptical of saying that any one fix is universal that um just like abstinence only is it may it may work for some people but we shouldn't assume that it works for everybody and so i say that you know meditation certainly can be helpful for some people but i wouldn't want to just make the same kind of pronouncement that everyone should be forced to meditate any more than anyone should be forced to <laughs> to be abstinent you know that's just <laughs> That's just me. <laughs> but but well, I do, obviously, I do see the value in it, and I do think that, I mean, I, I mean, I, I get such great feedback. I get people that said that they'd never, they'd never felt so, so good. Uh, some of them came up with, with ideas for jobs that they wanted to do and, you know, businesses they wanted to start and relationships they wanted to heal. And, I mean, it really, um, I, I got a, an awful lot of feedback, um, and even from ones that I didn't think were doing it, ones that would stare out the window, I thought, well, they're not doing it. But actually they were. They just had their own personal reasons for not wanting to lay down and the floor with everybody else. But, you know, after months they would just say, oh, this is just this has just had an amazing effect on me. So I do, you know, just from my personal experience, I, I agree. I'm not disagreeing. I'm just saying that I, I like to consider that, we are all uh, products of multiple influences on us. And then when we try to reduce it to one cause or one fix, that we, we could be missing a lot, and we also take away a lot of the autonomy from a person when we do that. Oh, I very much agree. I agree. Um, well, first of all, you give people a choice. Do you want to use drugs or yeah. alcohol, mind-altering substances or not? It's your choice. Do you want to reduce your use, uh, be safer or not? You know, this is all your choice. If you want to reduce, you want to quit, you want to be safer. And if you want to make one of those changes, then here's a whole toolbox full of tools that you can right. use. And right. med yeah, meditation is one tool of many. Yeah. 
And also meditation was really helpful uh, for reducing panic attacks and insomnia, which was another thing that was very common in the treatment center. Um, as you can imagine, people would have a hard time sleeping in a place like that. And um, and also panic attacks were pretty uh, common. And meditation, you know, can be a really great tool for those things as well. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think uh, we're running out of time now. So I want to thank you very much for being our guest this evening. Well, thank you. We've, we wandered on a lot of tangents. And, I, again, I just appreciate your work. I was so uh, grateful to find it. I think I honestly think you're saving lives. I really do. I don't think I'm understating it to say that. I think when when people can find um, safe ways to live, whether they're using or abstinent, when they're safe, that you're going to be saving lives. So I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you. And everyone, come back next week, next Thursday, when our guest will be Jenny Barber, who will be talking about harm reduction and young people and a drop-in center for young people in Canada. And thank you, everyone, and good night.